0: Well, good morning, Sailorville. And again, a very happy Mother's Day to you, mothers. If you brought uh, a Bible with you today, not just you moms, but everybody else, Genesis chapter 6, as we continue in our series in the beginning. Genesis chapter 6, and we will pick it up precisely where we left off last week in verse 8, where uh, in spite of God's declaration, that he will destroy the world because of its corruption, Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth 50 cubits. Its height 30 cubits. A cubit was 18 inches, 450 feet by 75 by 45. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side Make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. I will establish my covenant with you. That's the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible. We'll come back to this at the end of the flood narrative. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. you shall, they shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of animals according to their kinds, of creeping things in the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive." And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Evangelist Ray Comfort uh, once asked his listeners in a message to imagine, if they would, uh, boarding an airplane. As you are boarding the airplane, the flight attendant hands you a a parachute, and she tells you the reason she's giving you the parachute is for your comfort, uh, for your convenience, for your pleasure, and she tells you to strap it on, so you strap on the parachute, and uh, it sounds pretty strange to you, and you're about 20, 30,000 feet in the air, and you're bent over in the seat, and you're not comfortable, and this is not pleasant, and, and what's more, you see, people are snickering at you because nobody else has a parachute on except for one guy in the back. And uh, they're laughing, they're scoffing, they're pointing their fingers at you. And it's just, this is not the pleasant, comfortable thing you were promised. And then this first year uh, flight attendant spills piping hot coffee all over your lap, and enough is enough. You take the parachute off and you throw it on the ground, into the aisle, that is. Meanwhile, there's that other guy in the back who's got a parachute on. He's still got his on. Because when he was given the parachute and the flight attendant told him to strap it on, she also told him, the reason I'm giving you this parachute is the plane is going to go down when we're at about 30,000 feet. And you'll need it to survive. Now, The guy's got the same parachute on. A parachute, that is. I mean, is it it uncomfortable? Yes. Is it unpleasant? Of course it is. And when the first-year flight attendant spills piping hot coffee on his lap, does it hurt? Yes, it hurts. But does he then take the parachute off and throw it into the aisle? No, because he didn't put the parachute on to keep to make him comfortable, or to give him pleasure. He put it on to save his life. Two different reasons for putting the parachute on. Now, imagine Genesis chapter 6, just before the flood. It has never rained. Never in fact, the Bible said earlier during the creation account, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and a mist was going up from the land and it was watering the whole face of the ground. So no rain, no storms, never a flood. What's a flood? And yet God told Noah to build an ark. On dry land, no less. And why? Why did God tell Noah to build an ark? Well, he told him to build an ark so that it could make his life more comfortable. It would give him pleasure. He would enjoy the experience. It would only take him 120 years to get it done. Did he tell him it would make him popular? Did, he, did God tell him this would, this would really draw a crowd of admirers? No, he told him to build an ark to save his life and that of his family. That's it, period, right? Now, speaking of imagination, if you were to travel to a tiny town of Williamsburg, Pennsylvania, or not Pennsylvania, but uh, Kentucky, just 40 miles south of Cincinnati, you'd come to what is known as the Ark Encounter. It's only been up for about a year. Not even that, really. And here it is. It's very impressive. It's the largest wood frame structure in the world, and it's the dream. It was the dream of creation scientist Ken Ham, and by the way, you know, contrary to popular opinion, he's not in the line of the second son of Noah. I do, however, get a kick out of his critics. Here's what one critic did when they put a picture up. They said, "Notice uh, Ken uh, Noah's crane and Noah's uh, structural steel braces." Noah's Tyvek, that's my favorite one right there. Noah's plywood, Noah's pipeline or, or propane tank, rather, Noah's pickup trucks, etc. Okay, we get it, critics. That's pretty funny. But the fact of the matter is that's the reason why it only took Ken Ham a couple of years, it took Noah 120. Now the story of the Ark is a true story because the Bible is true. It's a literal story. Because the Bible is literal. There's nothing about this story that that would not lead or lend anyone to think that this is a make-believe story. It's a real story. It actually happened. And the science and the engineering behind the building of the ark is, I'm quite certain, nothing short of fascinating to many, especially if you're an engineer or a builder. We're not going to get bogged down on those things. Sorry to disappoint you. Because the Bible is a book about God, and it's a book about God's relationship to you and me, sinful you and sinful me. And the story of Noah, really the story of Noah is our story. What's more, it reveals how we too can find grace, not to make us more comfortable, but to save us from the wrath to come. So, if you really wish to know God, not just know about Him, then these evidences should be in your life—the evidences of, of a God-graced life. Noah, verse eight, found favor or found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the first thing I want you: to, if you want to have a God-graced life, you. you you have, you, have, you have to have found the grace of God. A god grace life has found the grace of God. Noah found grace. Our Bibles, the ESV, translates the word favor. If you had a New King James or King James, it says grace. And while Adam and Eve also found grace from God, this is the very first mention of this particular word. And sure enough, he found it. He didn't earn it. And by the way, everything that comes out of this account, the fact that he's righteous and he's blameless, the fact that he walks with God and that he's obedient, the fact that he perseveres, all flows from this right here, boom, the grace of God. It all flows from grace. Everything that comes out of this is a result of the grace of God in Noah's life and in Yours and mine if we experience the grace of God, if we find grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves, it is the, it's a gift of God, it's not something you earn, it's not a result of works, why? So that you can't boast about it, that's why. For we are his work of art. Created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. All of that is the result of God's grace found in your life. Amazing, amazing grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that what saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I've found. (laughs) I'm found. Really, it's more appropriate. Grace finds us rather than we finding grace, right? If there, the evidences of a God-grace life is first and foremost is that you have found the grace of God. Have you found it? Have you discovered the unearned, undeserved grace of God as Noah did? And it's found in Christ Jesus. Out of that comes righteousness. That's the second thing out you'll notice you are righteous. And that's what we're told about Noah. Noah, verse 9, was a righteous man. And this is the very first use of the word righteous in the Bible. We've been saying this, that the Genesis account gives us all of these first. Now we know from Genesis chapter 15 down the pike here, it tells us that Abraham believed God, <clears throat> and it was accredited to him. It was a, accounted to him as what? A, as righteous, right? So, so Abraham didn't He believe God. The righteousness was, was accounted to him. So faith, we see later on, is the very vehicle by which God declares us to be righteous. And what do you know? It's the same for Noah. Now we have to Make our way to the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 to see it, but here's what it says. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, namely the flood, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir, watch this, of the righteousness that comes, what? Comes by faith. Righteousness comes by faith. So sequentially, Noah was given grace, undeserved, unearned grace, and that grace produced faith. And that faith brought about, what do you know, the righteousness of God. Now, there is a practical righteousness that the rest of this passage is going to talk about. And the Bible talks about a practical kind of righteousness. It's, it's, it, it's what makes your, your, your faith that you claim the, the real deal. And we'll get to that. But I would ask you this morning, have you found grace? Has God declared you to be righteous by your faith in Him and in His Son? Is it there? Is it real in your life? Here's a third evidence of a God-graced life is you're becoming blameless. Now, this is that practical side of righteousness I just referred to. Again, the Bible says in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now, to be blameless was not to be perfect, okay? Uh, The word blameless, the Hebrew word means to be whole. It means to have integrity. In fact, the word was used to describe Old Testament sacrifices that were ready to use, ready to be put on the altar. They've been examined. There's no Mars. There's no defects, so to speak. A blameless man is not a perfect man, but he is a godly man. A blameless woman is not a perfect woman, but she is a godly woman. A blameless mother is not a perfect mother, but she is a godly mother. And that's the idea. We might call this person uh, unhypocritical or not hypocritical. Micah asked the question what, what, is, you know, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, right? That, that's the blameless man. I love the way Paul put it to Timothy. He said, Paul said, Now look, Timothy, in a great house, there are all kinds of vessels. There are there are vessels of gold and silver, and there are vessels of wood and clay. Some are for honor, and some are for dishonor. The wood and clay would be dishonored. Wood and clay pots in a typical home would be used as commodes, a dishonorable thing. So he goes on, he says, those things in your life that are dishonorable, if, if you will purge yourself from these, you will be a vessel useful for the master." And for every good work, have you ever read that? That's the blameless person. That's that's Noah. I remember earlier in my in my very first ministry, my one of my first mentors. His name was was the only my kids knew him as Mr. Campbell. That was it. He was a godly, godly man, and he was. A, I loved this guy. He taught me a lot of stuff. I remember one night we had a we had a, a testimony time, and he popped up. And he talked about how he had sinned against an employee. And uh, he had copped an attitude with her, and the Spirit of God would not let him get away with it. And uh, he he just wanted to go on record in front of the church to say he was thankful for the Holy Spirit's conviction in his life that led him back to that employee to ask for forgiveness for the attitude that he'd copped. And it was really cool. It was very powerful. It was unbelievably humble. And that night we did what we've done. we did for almost 20 straight years. Our family would gather together just before we went to bed. And everybody had to talk about some highlight in the day. Every, you It know, could be a song. could be one of the songs we sang. could be something from The Message. It could be something out of the Sunday school. Or it could be some personal encounter with someone. And our three-year-old, when we got to him, he just, he just was staring like a deer in the headlights. And he goes, Mr. Campbell sins? It absolutely was inconceivable in his mind that Mr. Campbell could ever sin. Now let me tell you something. The old man won some points with my son that day because of his humility and setting the record straight. But get this, he remained blameless. So those are some of the evidences of a God-graced life. Here's the fourth one. He walked, or you walk, with God. Now, this is, you say, well, didn't we talk about this a couple of weeks ago? Yes, with Enoch. If you remember, Enoch and Noah are the only ones in the Bible to be described as those who walked with God. And we said then, and we'll say it again with Noah, to walk with God implies both intimacy and intensity. They are both intrinsic within Walking with God it isn't just a, a, a mamsy-pamsy, casper-milk-toast kind of, oh, I walk with Jesus. No, there is an intimacy, but there is an intensity. Remember Enoch? He was, he was that preacher thundering about the judgment to come that Jude talks about. Well, it's not a whole lot different uh, with Noah. We have to go to 2 Peter, but we'll put the, the, the Scripture up for you. 2 Peter chapter 2, it says... If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. What was Noah doing in between building for 120 years? He was preaching. He was preaching the righteousness of God. That's what he was doing. Noah had both intimacy and intensity. But there is intimacy. Because walking with God implies that, doesn't it? That we're side by side. It's virtually indistinguishable at times who's leading who. We know we're being led by God. But when we walk close to God, we walk with him. Now, you moms, I I have observed this more times than I can count you moms walking through the corridors of the church with your little boy, so cute, with you walking this way and him pulling this way. Some of you are dragging him. You're yanking him. And it's, it's, it's quite comical, and I'm glad I'm not there anymore. And you're frazzled, and you're frustrated because this kid is pulling you in the opposite direction. And here, so here you have a picture in your mind, and so here's what I would say to you moms. The next time, the next time you're dragging that kid along, you think about God's heart towards you. When he wants to walk with you, but he feels like he's pulling you, you're yanking, you're whining, you're complaining, it's not going your way. Let me tell you something. When you see the mom walking the kid, it's, it's sort of embarrassing sometimes, but the other thing that comes to your mind is that kid is not going to win this battle, right? And neither are you. If you're pulling, if you're resisting God and he's pulling you in his direction and his desire to walk with you, it's an act of grace on his part. He's trying to get you to walk with him, not pull against him. You're not gonna win that battle even if you think you would. Here, I got a better idea. Walk with God. And then... The god grace life obeys him. I mean, you have to throw obedience in here. And the very last verse in the chapter just tells us that, what did Noah do? He did it. He obeyed God. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me Will be loved by my Father. And I will love Him. And I will manifest myself to Him. I will disclose myself to Him. I will show myself to Him. That's what God does when we obey Him. He he makes His, He reveals Himself in very particular and special ways. And don't you want that? Arkant Hughes writes this in his commentary. Building the ark required careful planning and engineering and a century of sweat. But Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him, unquote. When Noah finished laying out the incredible 450-foot keel and began to install the ark's ribs, imagine the abuse he took. How many Noah jokes do you think people could come up with in a century? Imagine the taunts that came at the expense of Noah and his own. How many of Noah's sons did it take to drive a spike? One to hold the spike and one to... But Noah remained obedient, doing exactly what God said for 25, 50, 75, 100, 120 years until the ark lay like a huge coffin on the land, unquote. If you want a God-graced life, then you have to be an obedient child of God. There's no other way about it. Just like the old hymn put it, right? Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Jesus said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. So a God-graced life is an obedient life, is it not? Are you? are you an obedient christian one more thing i want to share with you one more thing you are persevering a god graced life is a persevering life i mean 120 years mind you here okay uh, the reformers uh, had an expression they talked about uh, the perseverance of the saints uh, now that's maybe not in your own vocabulary but it should be in our circles it's more popularly known as eternal security or the security of the believer but let me tell you something perseverance of the saints is much a much more biblical line if salvation is real you will persevere you won't deny Jesus either with your words or your actions come hell or in this case high water When the Apostle Paul returns from his first missionary journey, he went right back through the towns he'd been to, planted churches, and the Bible says in Acts 14, to strengthen the saints and to tell them through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. If it was true then, why would it be different now? Does anyone define perseverance more than Noah? Think about it. Just a couple of strong arms, no modern technology, no cranes, no hydraulic lifts, although I'm sure that the pulley systems of those days were amazing. 120 years, time to build, time to preach, time to repent, and there's corruption throughout the entire world. And here he is, persevering. God's people persevere at all times, good times, Bad times, sad times, mad times, happy times, horrible times. We persevere by the grace of God. I see in our midst here this morning, I didn't think we'd see Tony Lawrence. There he is. And nothing like getting called out in the middle of a service, Tony. Tony, suffering from a, a particularly virulent form of cancer. A horrific kind. And yet, as I was in his home just the other day, he, because he can't talk much. It's, don't go talk to me. He, he, he can't hardly talk. The cancer's in his throat. But he points his finger to God. He points his, he points his finger heavenward and gives <laughs> praise to his Redeemer. All I could think of is the words of uh, Habakkuk who said, though the fig tree does not blossom and there be no grapes on the vine, Right? Though the olive crop fail and the fields produce no food, though there be no sheep in the pen or cattle in the straws, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Amen? Is anyone more persevering than our moms? Moms, can you say, though the laundry never ceases and there be no peanut butter in the jar, though the bills are always pending and the diapers never ending, though my husband doesn't get me like the day when he first met me, and though my children do not love you and at times seem to have no clue Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Can you say that? Persevere, godly moms. Persevere, finding grace and living by the same. After all, by the grace of God, you are what you are. And so, when you're up in the airplane and you've been told it's going down, and you tie that parachute to yourself, and things become uncomfortable, it's not what you thought you were buying into, do you then just throw it aside? No, you didn't put it on for comfort. You put it on to save your life and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the loss of the flesh. He's coming again. And he'll deliver you from the wrath to come. Are you clinging to Jesus? God, thank you for this time we could spend in your word and look into this life of Noah. What a man of God. Because you graced him, made him righteous, he trusted in you by faith, became a blameless man, walked with you, and persevered. I pray a special word of blessing over everyone in this church and in particular the moms and their abilities to persevere because you'll give them that ability, dear God. And in so doing, may their children rise up and call them blessed. May people be turned to righteousness because of the evident righteousness in their grace-filled lives. And now, God, I pray for everyone in this room I pray for those who have never experienced the grace of God in Christ Jesus that they might be saved. If that's you and you've never bowed the knee, if this outline of a god grace life doesn't apply to you, then you need to be saved. Fall on your heart's knees now and trust the Lord Jesus and find grace. We pray in Jesus' name.